This week's TribCast is sponsored by Hogg Foundation for Mental Health. Despite our obsession with the vaccine hesitant, these experts can explain how the right approach to vaccine outreach can bridge divides. Listen now at hogg.utexas.edu. And Texas Farm Bureau. Texas Farm Bureau represents the voice of Texas agriculture at local, state, and national levels. Learn more at texasfarmbureau.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for June 17th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I am joined by demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. Environmental reporter Aaron Douglas. Hello. And politics reporter James Badagan. Hello. So I don't even know where to begin with this week. It's been quite a week, a lot of news. Um, all three of y'all are here to uh, talk about big stories that y'all have been covering. I think I'm going to start with James, who was at the um, governor's press conference yesterday about the border wall. We talked a little bit about this last week, um, where Abbott had announced his plans that Texas was going to build its own version of the border wall now that Biden, the Biden administration was not moving to do so. And yesterday we got some details about how he says he's going to do this. James, can you talk to us a little bit about what the governor said? Yeah, yeah, a lot of news uh, yesterday, a lot of news this week. Feels like we're right back in session with, with all the news that's coming at us. But um, uh, one of the major things was that, um, you know, contrary to popular belief, we, we didn't have GoFundMe.gov, but we did get, I think, BorderWall.Texas.gov, which is where folks can go and donate um, if they're interested in donating to a state-funded border wall. Um but I think that's really going to be a smaller section of like how the state plans to pay for this. Uh, the big news that was made yesterday was the governor announcing that they are going to take $250 million out of the previously appropriated state budget um, and use that as a quote unquote down payment on the state funded border wall. Um, the legislature, as we all know, appropriates those funds. Um, and there won't doesn't seem like there will be an issue there because the top two budget writers were there, Senator Jane Nelson and Representative Greg Bonin um, from from each of the chambers, as were Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and House Speaker Dade Phelan. Um, so it doesn't look like there will be a challenge there, um, although maybe legal challenges may may come. That's TBD, I think. Um, and the governor also acknowledged that the $250 million is just a, a down payment. Um, and he uh, also acknowledged that, there, you know, it's, it's going to cost far more than, than that amount. Um, he didn't say how much it would cost. He wouldn't even uh, venture a guess. Um, but he did say that uh, between state land and uh, land that he thinks would be privately donated by Texas landowners, there would be hundreds and hundreds of miles of border wall. So if you do some of the math, that's the, uh, of some portions of the wall range from $4 million to $27 million per mile. Uh, that's going to be a pretty penny there uh, to, to build up this to build up this wall. Um, uh, I guess the uh, I guess that's the major news, really, unless you think I missed anything. 
Well, let's let's talk about that quickly first. I mean, you know, two hundred and fifty million dollar down payment. It sounds like a lot of money, but using that twenty six million per mile to forty six million per mile that you mentioned, that's also mentioned in your story. I just pulled out my calculator. We're talking about uh, two hundred fifty million paying for about uh, five to ten miles of border wall along the Texas right. border. Um, I also did a quick Google and seen that Texas has uh, 1,254 miles of shared border with Mexico. So um, that's not going to do much there, is it? Right. Right. And that's that's the question that a lot of people are asking. Right. Um, how exactly is this is this going to work? Obviously, there is already border wall in some sections of the border uh, on the Texas Mexico border. Right. Whether that's fencing, whether that's a straight up wall, whether that's, you know, humans there um, at ports of entry, there's already some type of barrier. So I don't know how much he plans. He doesn't know how much he plans. He did mention the other key thing, which is a very sort of wonky thing, which I think is, you know, um, is part of the course with, with the governor. There's a big pronouncement and then there's like wonky, wonky, wonky stuff, but we, we're going to hire a project manager to do this thing right. And the project manager is going to find out basically what are the costs, where is the best place to have uh, a border wall, and what are some of the challenges associated with that. And that was signed into effect uh, yesterday, the, the search has begun for the project manager who will work under the Texas Facilities uh, Commission to figure out how exactly this is going to work. And no, we're not. Well, actually, I don't know that. That's a good question. I, I think it would just come out of the Texas Facilities Commission, but, but that's a good question. But I mean, another issue, um, just to your point, Matthew, uh, about, you know, where's the wall going to go is that one thing that we already know about how the border works and or border security is that if you put a, uh, a wall in one section of that 1200 miles that we share with, with Mexico, there's, there's, let's say we just did like uh, five to 10 miles, right? There's still like, um, you know, 1195, 1190 other miles where people or, or illegal drugs can get through. And that is what we've seen in terms of migration patterns and drug smuggling patterns. If you close up one area, then there's just like another area where the immigrants and where um, drug smugglers will go. It's a very complicated process. Um, and there's, I would say that there's a reason why state officials have not ventured into it. Uh, also, additionally, there's legal questions about the authority to do this. Um, but yeah, I think even though we got some questions answered yesterday about how this is going to start off, I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions about how it's supposed to work, whether it's going to work, um, and whether it's even legal. And I think also, I mean, the announcement was a little bit late um, in the day. So Democrats um, who are also were traveling to D.C., which I think Alexis is going to talk about, um, they weren't in town to listen to it. So um, I think we're still getting their reactions and I'm sure they'll have a game plan uh, for how to tackle uh, this issue. They obviously are not in favor of using state funds for a, for a border wall. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it remains to be seen whether this is a serious proposition, right? Um, spending $250 million on a, what would be a tiny stretch of the border um, you know, is not going to change much, it seems to me, uh, in terms of, you know, the immigration patterns and, and uh, numbers and things like that that are happening right now on that border. So the question is, you know, how serious is Abbott going to be about spending more money on this? You know, uh, you had in your story that Arizona tried to crowdfund some, some uh, 
some some border funds and raised what about two hundred thousand dollars? Two hundred seventy thousand, yeah. And I mean, to, to your point, I mean, the governor has said he said yesterday as presser, you know, we're committed to this. We know it's going to cost more, but you know, everybody in this room is committed to this. So he's definitely saying he's committed to it. Um, whether that's going to be the case if he's reelected next year, and you know, everybody's talking about his presidential aspirations in twenty twenty four, whether he's going to be around to complete that. Um, I think those are. I think those are very valid, open questions. For sure. I mean, can we like talk about the politics of this? Obviously, yes. like this is coming ahead of what could be more than one primary challenger for the governor. And like, I, I mean, I guess in thinking through the process of this, like putting aside the logistical, which like obviously comes with real questions behind my like house in Laredo, where I grew up, the river runs through like a city park. You know, like, I don't know quite or, or along the city park, but like putting aside those questions, like, is the governor not setting himself up for additional pressure in the future? If like, it's essentially creating potential for like future political benchmarks for people to call him out on if this doesn't actually happen. Right. And if, it seems like at this point, there's not a whole lot of clarity about how it's supposed to actually happen. There's, there's definitely not a lot of clarity on how it's supposed to happen. I think to your point about the politics of it, one thing that is very clear in terms of the politics is that he is uh, getting a lot of pressure from his right flank, right? This this idea of building the border wall with state funds actually, uh, I think, can safely be said, started with uh, Don Huffines, uh, who is, is a Republican primary candidate who's challenging Abbott. Um, and he has said himself, thank you, <laughs> Governor Abbott, for joining my campaign and adopting my plan. So I think there's definitely that argument to be made. Um, and then the benchmarks of like how far you've gone along, I think that's a great point, Alexa, uh, because, you know, the the federal government has had issues trying to get that land, you know, from private landowners. And I think there's a butterfly reserve in South Texas that also there were issues with all kinds of like natural reserves that there were issues with in terms of trying to get that land. The Trump administration had problems with it. Um, I would think the Obama and even the Bush administration had problems with similar issues. And there are literally landowners in South Texas, as, as you well know, uh, Alexa, that have been fighting the federal government government for like more a decade or more um, because the federal government is trying to take their land for a border wall. So uh, the, now the state government is essentially uh, gearing up to get into that same fight, question mark. Um, and and Governor Abbott said yesterday he wants the the feds to return any land that they took under previous administrations to Texans. But also, by the way, we're going to ask those same landowners if we can just take it for, for Texas to, to do that border wall. I think that's, I mean, maybe there are some people who, I mean, sure, I'm sure that there are some people who love, um, a lot of people maybe in Texas who love the state government more than they love the federal government. But I think when it comes to property rights, I think that's pretty far-fetched. I don't know how many folks, but I don't know. You know, I haven't talked to those people. Maybe the governor has. I'm not sure the idea of, you know, you're upset because the federal government took your land, but it's okay now the state government has it. I'm not sure that's going to fly for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, we talked about political politics of this. We talked about the policy of this. I mean, there's also just the rhetorical choices that were made by uh, state leaders in this. You know, you had Greg Abbott really talking about, you know, basically describing what seemed to be like a, a feeling of lawlessness around the border, you know, um, and you had 
Dan Patrick using the word invasion, um, which is obviously a um, a uh, sensitive word to be used, you know, given the shooting in El Paso and the the shooter who did that using that exact same word is citing the motivation for his shooting. Greg Abbott used that word, I believe, right today in a press conference as well, James. Um, I mean, what, what, what are you hearing from people just about kind of the way that Abbott and other state leaders who were at this press conference were talking about, uh, you know, what's happening at the border right now? I think I think there's a lot of concern, obviously, and I think rightly there there should be, uh, because both of these leaders, uh, Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick, went to El Paso um, in the days after uh, uh, an alleged white supremacist uh, shot and killed 23 people and injured many others, uh, just so that he could, in his words, stop a Hispanic invasion uh, in El Paso. Um, and, and both of those leaders promised to take steps to make sure that another attack like that didn't happen. Um, they were very adamant about that in the moment. Obviously, during the session, things turned out very differently. But I think, and, and uh, our fellow Heidi Perez Moreno is, is working on a story about this, but um, she spoke with uh, Speaker Pro Tem, uh, Joe Moody, who's a state representative from El Paso. Um, and he's basically saying like, you know, you guys spoke about this and you guys know that that kind of wording, rhetoric, verbiage, whatever you want to call it, uh, calling, um, immigrants seeking asylum and coming to this country, looking for a better life, calling that an invasion will set off a certain, uh, certain sector of the population, people who are being radicalized and are extremists, um, and they ought to know better. And, and Joe Moody took real issue with that. Um, saying that, like, you know, now that, the you know, when, when they were there, they were singing a very different tune, but now the bodies are cold and, and they're right back to, to, to saying the same things. And I think it's not just representatives, it's not just uh, folks from Congress, but I think the average citizens in El Paso and probably in other border communities are concerned about the use of that language. Because, I mean, that language, uh, this is not anybody putting anything in anyone's mouth. That language came straight from the horse's mouth. That was in the El Paso shooter's uh, screed um, and his hateful message that he left for for law enforcement. It's coming straight from there. So to continue using that that word um, in this context, knowing what it what it means um, to different sectors of the population, I think I think is fair for for particularly El Paso lawmakers, but really anybody to, to call out and say, hey, wait a minute, what are we doing here? Haven't we seen that this has had negative effects in the past? And are we potentially setting off somebody else to, to do the same? I think that is really concerning. And, and that's one of the stories we're working on right now. Well, and we should point out that Dan Patrick used this language when he was running for lieutenant governor back in 2014 and really never backed away from it. I think he stopped sort of using it in the aftermath of El Paso, but it, I, I don't think we ever got him to address his past use of it. And I think in the aftermath of El Paso, though, like that was an instance where this like charade about how you talk about immigrants. It's not just, the possible effect of it is not limited to just immigrants, right? When you think about the El Paso shooting, like that gunman didn't stop to ask people for their papers or for proof of citizenship. He shot at people who he 
thought looked a certain way. And I think when you are dealing with this sort of rhetoric, particularly in the aftermath of El Paso and seeing the role it took, you can't, you can't not think about it in that same context. And, and in the fact that that shooting really highlighted how it doesn't actually matter if you're talking about immigrants or not, or if you're talking about people who came over on a work visa or people who are crossing the border because they've been waiting to seek asylum. And, and I think that our lawmakers are, are aware of this, right? Like they, they were part of the conversation after El Paso. They flew out there, like James said, they talked to lawmakers there. They talked to Hispanic people in other parts of the state. It just, I, I was a bit baffled to see that, particularly in the aftermath and sort of the promises that a lot of these folks made after the El Paso shooting. And, and that's the exact point, Alexa, that you're making, that there's there's no way you can claim that you didn't know uh, the impact that using this word in this type of setting would have. Because you talk to the El Paso lawmakers, you talk to the people there, um, and, and you know, and, and the other thing is that, you know, I remember because I was there, Greg Abbott called this domestic terrorism. He called it an act of white supremacy. Um, and so he he knows. And, and I think the lieutenant governor also knows. And they they set up, you know, domestic terrorism task forces aftermath. And they set up these mass violence committees. So there's no way that you do not know what that word means um, in the context of of what we're talking about here. Um, and that's what we've heard from from folks who were upset about this. Yeah, you know, I think it was hard yesterday not to think about the messages we're sending and the the decisions we're making about what to remember, what to emphasize, and what to talk about. You know, earlier in the day, you had Governor Abbott signing the critical race theory bill, the bill that um, you know was was filed in a out of a concern about you know teaching children about racism and the impact of racism on the country. Abbott, when he signed that bill, included a signing statement saying that the bill did not go far enough. And then he was gonna include the issue of critical race theory in an upcoming uh, special session. Then you have this press conference where, you know, the um, elected officials are using these words, you know, that were used in this, words that a lot of people, particularly in communities that were most affected by that shooting, you, you know, remember vividly and and still want to talk about and still remind people about. And then, you know, while that press conference was going on, the Texas legislature online website, the, the notification pops up that they have signed the constitutional, that Abbott has signed the constitutional carry bill and that is becoming law. You know, and, and you mentioned Joe Moody earlier who stood up um, when that bill was kind of receiving final passage in the house and gave a speech about, you know, meeting with the victims of the El Paso shooting in the aftermath of that shooting, the family members and things like that, and about telling them that, you know, along with Governor Abbott, that they were going to do things, um, you know, related to to gun laws um, to to prevent things like this from happening again. And then, you know, um, instead they go the other direction and they pass this uh, constitutional carry, permitless carry handgun bill. So that comes out, you know, in the middle of that that press conference in which there is all this rhetoric about the, the invasion, about the um, 
you know, violence and, and drugs and, and everything that's happening on the border, you know, just, just the, the confluence of all those things, like, you know, makes you think about kind of what people are emphasizing, what people, you know, think we need to continue talking about and what, you know, I, other I things was make... we shouldn't be talking about or, or thinking about as well. Um, all those well, things. Oh man, together. you beat me you know, to the joke. Another bill that was also <laughs> signed by the governor yesterday was a, um, um, a bill, um, related to the Holocaust and and about teaching uh, about the violence and the the racism behind that in schools um, and so you know just just like a lot of interesting contrasts um, in in terms of the, the messages being sent yesterday for sure um, James so you went to that press conference right you were there in person I was there in person yes did it feel like the air conditioner was running. Um, <laughs> We were very comfortable and there was a lot of people in, there was a lot of people in there, uh, but we were very comfortable. It was, it was okay. Very good. Okay. That's my awkward transition to our next topic here, uh, where, where we will turn to Aaron to talk about what in the world is happening with our power grid. Yeah. So speaking of Abbott, I think it was at that press conference, one of my colleagues, uh, Michelle Furman wrote a story about this yesterday that Abbott was saying that the Texas power grid is better today than it's ever been, which is quite the statement to make while we're in a conservation notice through Friday asking Texans to conserve their power use, cut back their electricity so that we don't uh, strip the power grid of demand when we don't have enough supply. And so basically what has been happening is that um, a significant amount of power generation, so power plants, are unexpectedly offline this week. And so that combined with a high amount of electricity use uh, in the hot weather, it's been pretty hot this week. I mean, not, not Texas hot quite yet, but we're all cranking up the air conditioning and we don't have as much supply as we thought that we would have to meet what is looking to be record levels of demand. And so that has prompted the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, who we all now know very well um, as ERCOT, uh, to ask all of us to cut back our power use. Right. So basically that, that message came out, what, Monday Right, Aaron, where there were there were concerns. Yes. We never basically right that the, the, the demand was approaching the supply you know you, you everyone a lot of us have become familiar with that ERCOT graph right yes. which I know is is uh you know can change and can be kind of dynamic but right we were starting to see that I think the red line approaching the green line and, and crossing over there where there might be a problem where yeah. again like Texas wasn't providing enough power to. And to it's important to know that ERCOT did say that they didn't expect that they would have to do any outages to consumers, any controlled outages. So the first thing that the grid operator does is they take some sort of behind the scenes approaches to see if they can get more power generation online. And then if that doesn't work, then they go to the public and say, hey, everyone, can you cut back demand? And that's what happened on Monday. And it was interesting to see ERCOT change its messaging after the February storm, because during the February power crisis, one of the big criticisms of the grid was that there wasn't enough communication to the public ahead of time as to what could have been done, like could we have had conservation notices earlier, um, what were the potential for what could happen. And so this time what they did is they said, okay, everyone cut back your power use and cut it back until Friday. And that is a little bit of a change because typically what we would see is them ask us to cut it back 
on Monday and then they would assess again on Tuesday and they'd ask us to cut it back again on Tuesday and then they'd reassess again on Wednesday. And every single day, the public would be um, communicated to again um, and creating more anxiety again and again. And so I do think that that was a positive change that I saw from ERCOT this week was that they said, hey, like this week we're a little bit stressed. So everyone cut back your power use a little bit here. Um, so I do want to mention also that what ERCOT does is it forecasts for all of these different scenarios. So, you know, if there's too many plants offline, they forecast for that scenario. If there's not enough wind, they forecast for that scenario. Um, if there's not enough uh, solar, you know, whatever. But the problem this week is yet again, two of their scenarios are happening at the same time. So we have a large amount of power plants that are unexpectedly offline, which ERCOT won't tell us why that is. And then we also have a low amount of wind production because just the wind is not blowing this week, it's still, and that's not what they expected. That's not usual for the summer season. And so that's what's creating a low amount of power supply this week. I'm gonna use that um... I'm a, a little bit stressed on the uh, on tactic on Matthew when uh, when he's trying to ask me for more copy. I'm a little bit stressed, so you know, reduce your reduce your uh, your expectations here. Yeah, and the other thing too is like you know, it's it's hot right now in Texas, but it's not nearly as hot as it's going to get. And so to see this conservation notice, I think really spooked a lot of people and ERCOT needs to be prepared for, you know, how much anxiety they're going to be creating every single time they have to issue one of these because people are traumatized now in Texas. And um, I, I think they really need to be very quick and forward and transparent with their communications with the public on this stuff now. I did have a question about that, Aaron. Um, and, and the governor did point out yesterday that, you know, one of the things that people asked for was better communication. And he felt like there was better communication in, ter in terms of asking for more conservation, which, you know, I'll let you weigh in on that. But um, the question I had is, uh, you know, it is going to get hotter, um, but it just seemed like a lot of a lot of the power generation was out this week for whatever reason. And you've talked to us a little bit about how you don't know why and you, you can't really find those answers right now. But I mean, is it, is it going to be, I guess I'm asking you to reassure me and tell me it's going to be okay. Like those are going to come back as we get into like weeks of hundred degree. Like is, yeah. is, is, I don't know, or, or was it just a scare and we're going to be fine? I don't know. Yeah. So the thing is, is that what Abbott said in his press conference was a little misleading. He said that the power plants were getting their repairs done now before the real heat of the summer hits. But that is not the type of outages that we were experiencing this week. The type of outages we were experiencing were unexpected. Uh, ERCOT calls them forced. And so that means that something in the power plant broke and the power plant had to unexpectedly take its plant offline. That is pretty unusual for the summer season. We don't usually see that because power plants in Texas are built to run in the summer heat. I mean, if you remember, that was one of the big problems in February is that we build for the summer here. We don't build for the winter. So if we have built for the summer, then I really am sort of flabbergasted as to why they're going down in the summer heat right now. And I wish that I could get some answers from ERCOT as to what they're hearing even anecdotally 
as to why the plants are going down. We know that there was one unit of a nuclear power plant that went down because of a fire that happened and they had to um, shut down half of the plant. But the thing is, is that's the only information we have because the nuclear plants have to report to the federal government. So, I mean, we're anxiously awaiting more answers as to why this is happening. It does make it a little bit concerning, I think, because we should have confidence that these plants can run in the summer heat. Um, I guess I would say that this is a somewhat unusual circumstance and that we don't have a lot of wind production right now. And typically in the summer, we would see high wind production on the coast during the late afternoon hours, which is when we reach our peaks of usage. So I think that, you know, the summer is going to be a real test for ERCOT and the grid because we are also wondering if there are any damages from February that are now creating new complications for the power grid, like whether they had something break that they didn't know about and now they're seeing it or something like that. That's something that experts have raised to us. But again, I don't have any information from ERCOT one way or the other. Erin, one thing that we saw from um, a lot of folks unhappy about the situation with ERCOT, particularly Democrats, but not just Democrats, was people bringing up a quote um, from Greg Abbott when he signed some bills kind of in response to the winter storm, basically saying that everything that needed to be done was done um, this, this past session. You know, the, the, the big question I know a lot of people are wondering about is, was I thought that we just spent, you know, the past six months figuring out a way to make the grid more resilient. What's what happened here? Um, is that is that a fair criticism to make of um, of our state leaders now that we're kind of in this situation and, you know, less than three weeks out of the legislative session? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the thing is, is that during the February power crisis, do you know, if you look at some analyses, 700 people died in Texas, if you look at BuzzFeed's most recent analysis of mortality data. And I think that, you know, looking at the session, we did pass some things. We passed some bills to require power plants to weatherize their equipment and some other things. But I really think that they really did the bare minimum during the session. Like the bare minimum was like, ask your power plants to weatherize like they did a decade ago and then legislators failed to do and don't cause a financial crisis. So then we saw the bailouts of the utility companies that would prevent some like super high power bills to consumers. So to me, just looking at what we passed, Senate bills two and three require power plants to withstand more extreme weather, but those are rules that are gonna be created by the Public Utility Commission. It's gonna take years to implement that. And then it's also gonna create a statewide emergency system. Um, and we're gonna change ERCOT's governing board, which if you listen to some lawmakers, they say that that is the solution of all solutions, that if you change the management, then everything will change, which I don't know, maybe, uh, but in the short term, I don't think that that really fixes the grid. I think fixing the grid requires something more comprehensive. You know, we didn't do anything during the session to 
reduce consumer demand or industrial demand. So, you know, some experts I've seen calling for sort of demand side programs that would pay us to actually reduce our power usage rather than go on, uh, you know, the news and, and beg us to reduce our power usage and also creating like more energy efficient homes or energy efficient businesses or even installing backup power generation. I mean, there's a lot of ideas as to how Texas can manage the grid better. And we need to figure it out because the way that the Texas grid is set up, um, very heavily reliant on natural gas, heavily reliant on wind. And those are the trends for the future of electricity grids in America. So, you know, if we wanna actually go through this energy transition in a way that is um, reliable and sustainable and economical um, because, you know, coal power plants are not economical um, anymore in a lot of areas, then we need to figure out how we can make sure that our supply and demand are, are balancing with these new sources of generation. One last question as I sit sweating in my house. Um, the ERCOT said um, that, you know, as you mentioned, that, that they were going to ask people to conserve through Friday. Is there any indication that will be kind of out of the woods after Friday? Do we have any sense as to whether this could continue into the weekend and next week? I guess it's possible it continues. I, I'm not going to speculate on that because I haven't heard much from ERCOT, but I will say that ERCOT issued a very optimistic press release on, I think that was Tuesday, that they said that the grid, quote, remained strong during record demand. And and then I talked to a spokesperson yesterday who said that it looks like things will continue to improve and, and thanked Texans for successful electricity conservation. So I really think that it is going to improve, continue to improve the rest of this week. That is by all indication of what ERCOT is telling us. And, you know, you can also look at the reserves on ERCOT site and it looks a lot better than it did on Monday. I think Monday was really the stressful day. And we also have some forecasts showing that wind is expected to improve later in the week. And I would think that the thermal power plants that are mostly natural gas are probably getting their plants fixed this week too. So um, I would be cautiously optimistic that uh, the conservation notice goes through Friday and, and hopefully doesn't continue into the weekend. Good to hear. All right, let's pause for a second and hear from our sponsors. Texas State Technical College is helping to rebuild Texas one new employee at a time. With 50-plus programs, we're preparing Texans to rebuild the infrastructure Texas needs. Find out more at tstc.edu. And Educate Texas stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. All right. Well, while we were sweating down here in Texas, a lot of the uh, Democratic dele uh, members of the Texas legislature were fortunate enough to be up in Washington, D.C., where there's air conditioning and you don't have to feel guilty about it. Um, they were meeting with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, Democratic senators and various other folks trying to push for federal voting rights legislation. Alexa, you've been covering this story uh, this week. Can you tell us a little bit about what that trip was and, and what they were hoping to accomplish? Yeah, so basically in the, the aftermath of their sort of very dramatic walkout just before the end of session that doomed Senate Bill 7, uh, Texas Democrats have kind of turned 
their focus on Congress and, and basically saying like, look, you sort of regaled us in praise for what we did in temporarily killing that bill, but it was only temporary, right? Governor Greg Abbott has said he's bringing lawmakers back to pass it. And so in light of that, they turned to Congress to sort of use this and press them for action on two pieces of federal legislation that are up in the air in D.C. right now that could, you know, in in their eyes, uh, counter some of the GOP efforts at the legislature and, and in reality sort of preempt a lot of what was up what was on the table in SB7. And so, like you said, they've had meetings with individual U.S. senators, including one with uh, Joe Manchin, who's sort of the linchpin in in a lot of these considerations up in Congress. They went to the Senate Democratic Caucus luncheon on Tuesday, where they apparently got more than one standing ovation, um, though obviously they are sort of within kindred spirits who already support their cause. Uh, They met with Nancy Pelosi, they met with Chuck Schumer, and then of course yesterday they met with the vice president. And, you know, I, I don't know how much this is going to actually move the table for what they are after. I think there were questions about whether this would just be like a you know, glorified victory lap for them. I I think at the end of the day, this what this has done though, it it has elevated sort of this fight, even if it's a losing one in Texas, onto the national stage at a time where this federal legislation had stalled. And so, you know, I think we'll sort of see what will come of it. I think for the Democrats though, the attention that they have tried to sort of leverage um, has, you know, ended in sort of two full days of, of meetings up on Capitol Hill and even in the White House. And, and the big kind of message, I think, coming from this, in addition to, you know, some things and some more ambitious federal legislation that would, you know, uh, affect voter registration and, and mail-in voting and things like that. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Alexa, the big ask for um, Texas Democrats is related to preclearance, right? Where the, the state used to be under kind of a, the Federal Voting Rights Act, which required, uh, you know, the Justice Department to sign off on changes um, Texas made to its election procedures before they went into effect due to Texas's history of racism um, around voting um, and, and other things in the state. Um, but of course, the Supreme Court kind of gutted that provision earlier this decade, or I guess last decade now um, that uh, um, that kind of removed preclearance for Texas. And one of the big things that, that Democrats are saying is needed is to to bring those protections back. Yeah, I think I think for a lot of folks, that's ultimately where like that's the ballgame, right? A return to preclearance. It's been part of the litigation, the very, very long litigation we saw in like redistricting from 2011 up up through last year. I think it might still be going. They might still be fighting about attorney's fees. Um, It's part of what you see in litigation related to what we saw in voter ID, all of these sort of fights that have gone to the courts because Democrats just don't have the numbers in the legislature have tried in some way to get Texas back under what was left of preclearance that the government that the courts could sort of bail Texas back in that hasn't gone anywhere the the courts are now probably even in a position where they're probably even less welcome to that than they were a few years ago and so Congress and federal legislation is really the last hope here and I think if you look at a state like Texas 
it has a very, very long history of intentional discrimination against voters of color by state lawmakers. And so I think the the idea of it becoming a poster child for this has always has always existed. I think the walkout and what Democrats are are have the attention they've been trying to garner on it has been sort of the the latest phase of of their appeals to Congress to say we need you to put us back under this. We don't have power to stop any of this ultimately because we don't have the numbers, and the courts aren't necessarily going to be on our side. And so if preclearance were to come back. You know, Texas, this this massive Senate Bill 7 bill that almost became law would have had to go through a very thorough review by the DOJ or by a federal court in D.C. to make sure it didn't harm voters of color. And so, I, you know, ultimately, that's the ballgame. I think if even if the For the People Act, which is the other piece of legislation they're pushing, doesn't end up moving the, I wouldn't be surprised if we'll continue to see Texas sort of brought up as an example for why the legislation that would bring back preclearance is needed in, in the eyes of these folks. So as this discussion plays out on the federal level, a lot of the attention goes to Senator Joe Manchin, the West Virginia moderate Democrat, who is kind of the the 50th vote needed on this. Um, of course, as you have mentioned in your stories, the the filibuster also stands in the way here, right? The, um, in order to pass broad voting legislation, they would need 60 votes under current Senate rules. And Manchin seems kind of unwilling to get rid of that filibuster for this or for other reasons. That said, he seemed to be a kind of a target of the Democrats this week, um, a couple of lawmakers meeting with his staff. And not too long after that, um, not to necessarily put cause and effect here, I'm not sure he explicitly said it was because of those meetings, but came out and seemed interested in in some sort of compromise. Does that move? Does that change anything, though? I mean, because the filibuster still remains in effect. Is, are we still looking at a pretty uphill battle and in, in both Washington and Austin for for Democrats' efforts to kind of fight these bills and and bring in new legislation? Um, Yeah, I think the timeline there really benefited the Democrat, the Texas (laughs) Democrats that were up in Congress. Uh, You know, I think think you're right. I think at the end of the day, look, I don't cover Congress, so I may overspeak on this, but I I think at the end of the day, the filibuster still stands as a major barrier. And uh, I, I think it would be naive to think that you're going to get enough Republicans to sign on to any of these measures, even this compromised version of it, just because of, you know, how sweeping the For the People Act would be in some states, including Texas, and and how far it would go in changing election rules. I mean, like, we're one of very few states that still don't have online voter registration, and the For the People Act calls for automatic and same-day registration. You know, it's it's a it's a whole sort of different landscape of elections. Um, but, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, when you think about the special session, just to, like, bring this back to Austin, the... There, the timelines here, I'm not sure will end up lining up altogether, right? You have lawmakers coming back at some point this summer. Who knows? Who knows if we'll have power when they do? <laughs> and the idea of this moving in Congress is still sort of very up in the air that it's hard to tell right now whether any of this is going to be in effect to preempt anything that may or may not and will likely end up being passed at the state legislature. All right. Well, um, stay tuned as this is going to be, uh, I think, a big focus throughout the summer and, and, and into the fall as well as we look into redistricting. Yeah, I would I would like to sort of build a wall between my 78 degree house and the Capitol at this point, <laughs> just at the thought of, of the special sessions we've got ahead of us. 
Good luck with that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you to James, Alexa, and Aaron. Thank you to Michael Ray, our producer. And thank you to our sponsors, the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health, the Texas Farm Bureau, Texas State Technical College, and Educate, and Educate Texas. We will be back next week. You